All right, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. As you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, over the next several months, we're going to be walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, really at this point scheduled to end that in, in really the middle of May. Um, and so we're going to just take these 12 chapters and just step through um, one at a time, verse by verse. And one of the reasons why um, I think it's important for us to come to a book of the Bible and to study that book of the Bible uh, verse by verse, or at least in order, um, is that that's generally speaking um, how we engage or any, interact with any type of information that we come to. Uh, we sit down with the newspaper and we start at the beginning of the article and we read to the end of the article. Um, unless you uh, just happened to be late to a movie that you would be going to, you get early to the theater so that you can see the beginning and you suffer through all the credits and commercials and then it starts and you're, you're there for the beginning. And so there, there's this pattern built into our lives where we start at the beginning of something and we work through the end because we know and understand that just given the rules of language and how different art forms work, which writing is one of them, um, they build on each other. And so that's one of the reasons why we do that when we come to the scriptures. Um, because what Solomon had to say last week is in many ways going to set us up for this week and the weeks that come. One of the other reasons that it's, it, I think it's important for us um, to be willing to step back into a book of the Bible and just walk through it um, from beginning to end is because oftentimes um, the Spirit through the Word is going to cause us to think about things that we may not have otherwise thought of. Now, that could have been a mental deficiency on my part. I, I didn't have the creativity enough to go, oh, we should think about that. Uh, that also guards me from going, uh, you know what, now I'm, I'm a little afraid to tackle that subject and not going to do it. Um, so when we start at the beginning and work through a book and we get to tough subjects, uh, well, we can in some ways conclude that we're, we're here because God's Spirit put us here and we're going to walk through it and and uh, not shy from it, but work through it and look at it. Um, and so to walk through a book of the Bible like this is, is, is helpful and important. Um, and so we tackle Ecclesiastes now. And given where we were last week, you guys look really good this morning. Um, last week was super depressive. Uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's nothingness, just forget life. You're not going to gain anything. You're not going to profit anything. You can't even learn enough to, to make a difference. What's been crooked can't be made. I mean, it, he went on and on and on and on and really tried to dismantle where oftentimes life's foundations get built. And there's an appropriateness to understanding his, his pessimism and his negativity, and that appropriateness is found in that Solomon is taking aim at, and really the Holy Spirit through Solomon is taking aim at, false foundations that we can oftentimes find ourselves building life upon. You can use the word worldview to put in instead of foundation, I mean both are the same thought, if philosophy would be another word to place in there if you wanted. But what Solomon has said already and where he takes us again this morning and where really we will sit on repeat through all of the different areas of life is that there is one foundation that life is to be built on. At the end of the matter, all has been heard. 
Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. That's where he ends the book. So there, there in some ways, is, is hope at the light, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, as Solomon writes, and we went there last week so that in many ways we would know for the next four and a half months it's not just down and drag and you know, let's be real sad and um, pessimistic people ourselves, but where this book can be a tremendous gift for us is that we, we hear and we apply and we seek to not build our lives on these foundations that are unable to withstand the weight of life itself. And that's where Solomon has us. It will have us time and time again. So let's pray. We'll hop into chapter 2. We'll hit the first 12 verses of chapter 2 here this morning as Solomon really takes aim at pleasure and puts his crosshairs on that false foundation. Father God, you are the air. We breathe. You are our daily bread. God, I pray that there would be a a desperate desire for you. God, whether we walked into this room this morning or not and felt desperate for your word, whether we felt desperate to hear from you, whether we we, we paused and, and thought through the fact that in just a just a little while, in a few minutes, we were going to sing to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords and to the Creator of all things. And whether we consciously process that a little bit after that, we were going to have an opportunity to talk to Him. And then we were going to pause and we're going to awkwardly shake hands with one another. But then we're going to come back and we're going to then hear from the King. Whether we thought that, that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves, as we come to your word, about to hear from you. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that understand and minds that comprehend. And I pray that you'd be gracious to us in revealing the areas of life where This false foundation of pleasure is what we have built ourselves upon. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the things that we walked through and looked at last week in really by way of introduction is just what we were trying to accomplish throughout these four and a half months as we get into Ecclesiastes. And so one of the things, the first thing there is that we may see all areas of life as opportunities to worship Christ. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink in all that you do, do all to the glory of God. And there there is an appropriateness to walking through and looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, and seeing all of these different areas that are listed and viewing them as opportunities to Worship And Solomon is going to say as much next week where he is going to begin to draw a few conclusions and the pessimism lifts for a brief moment and he begins to walk us through, well, what is good to do? If all of these things are bad to do, what is good to do? And it becomes part of his focus to have us see these different areas as opportunities for worship. 
But at the same time, if it's an opportunity for worship, it is also a potential trap in idolatry. And that's really where Solomon finds himself writing for most of the entire book. He writes subjectively as somebody who aimed to experience everything that there was possibly to experience, and he does so, and did it in ways that you and I can't even begin to approach or try and accomplish. He placed his life, he aimed his heart essentially at being an idolater to the absolute extreme ends that he could. And he finds that it actually disappointed. And it was nothing. And it was vanity. And it was just smoke and mirrors and vapor. So we can see that these areas are opportunities for worship, but they're equally opportunities for idolatry. Thirdly, that we may see that there's an abundant life found in and through Jesus Christ. And what Solomon begins to say, and he doesn't say this in as many words, but we can understand from the New Testament and what is a little bit more clear in regards to the life that Jesus provides is that um, there is an abundant life and that life is not a rubber stamp yes to everything that you may want. It is a life of meaning and purpose found in and through a relationship with Jesus Christ that allows us to be able to enjoy different areas of life and not make them idols. And so we can walk through a text like Ecclesiastes 2 as he walks through and says, I tried to just laugh a lot. And we can rightly go, you know, laughing is good. Laughing is good. Sitting around the dinner table with with a good group of friends and having those belly aching laughs, those things are good. But if that becomes all I pursue, then I've really crossed the lines into some areas that are now idolatrous. And so we can see that there is an abundant life in Jesus Christ. It's a life of meaning and purpose that is found in and through him. But it's not a life that just says, or it's not a rubber stamp that just gives you a yes to everything that you may want. It's a life that reorders and reshapes, desires, priorities, and then gives us an opportunity to aim at pursuing his glory as first and foremost in our lives. And so what you have and what what really as Americans I think we interact with a little bit differently than perhaps other cultures. And I was thinking through this um, this week and how would the book of Ecclesiastes work with you know an, an African village culture because it's very different than ours. Um, but in our American culture you, you have this growing and, and it's been growing for a long time and I don't think it'll ever stop growing but this, this desire for you and I to be made to feel like there's something else for us to go and do. There's something else for us to go and earn. There's something else for us to go and buy. There's something else for us to go and accomplish. And we don't know what the something else always is because it's always something else, right? You can't really put your fingers on it. You can't wrap your arms around it. And as soon as you may have gotten the brand new car you thought was the something else, well, now there's something else. There's another car. My you know, there's, when the, the phone is somehow now out of date two weeks after I bought it and well, wait a minute, and, 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 I, and I know and I feel those, those pulls and those tensions in my life, and just in regards to technology, where, I mean, I'll, I'll get a phone, and then I'll sit down with a buddy who's got the next version of that phone, and I'll go, man, my, my phone's terrible, because there's always something else, and if, if some of you may have experienced this, I, I grew up in a subdivision where there was a cul-de-sac, and I grew up on that cul-de-sac. I was one of the four houses that circled around there, and I just spent countless hours rollerblading and riding my bike in circles on that cul-de-sac. 
just around and around and around. And in many ways, life can be like that, where you never actually aim and achieve anything because you're always just trying to get what's next. But faith becomes now an exit ramp to the cul-de-sac. It becomes a way to not be caught in the trap of spinning for what is next, but allowing yourself to have a perspective that allows you to build a foundation that's not going to crush and crumble under the weight of life. Now, given where that lies for American culture, marketing and marketers are unbelievably skilled at causing us to feel like the something else is something we need to pursue. So, this uh, it was a couple weeks ago. I was in, in, it was in an environment where there was a, a coffee table before me. And there was a magazine on that table. There's actually several magazines on the table. And it was the Luxury Magazine. Now, I did not know that this magazine even existed. And I came home from that, from that time, and I told Kara, I was like, I, I looked through this magazine. I just kind of leafed through it. And I was like, there is a whole other world that I just don't even conceive of where coats cost $2,000 and boots cost $4,000. And these are all of the things laid out in this luxury magazine. And, and this magazine is actually only for the exclusive card holders of the luxury credit card, which costs you $1,000 to even carry around in your pocket. But they're trying to make you feel something. They're trying to make you feel want. And I thought about how that compared to the East Bay catalog I used to get as a kid. I don't know if any of you recognize that name, but it was a free catalog that had all sorts of different sports stuff in it. And they would send it to anybody and everybody who would want it because they were just hoping some guy like me would convince his mom to spend 50 bucks on a pair of sneakers. There's a huge difference between these two magazines. Porsche, as a company, apparently, and I I was unable to confirm this because I struck out and failed in my attempt, they will send a leather-bound catalog of their cars to you if you call and request it. As a sophomore in college, I did so. They didn't send it to me. I don't think I answered their questions correctly. It was like, well, what is your occupation? I'm a student. What are you studying? Youth ministry. Like, you're not our guy. We're not going to send you the catalog. But there is a desire on marketers, and they're brilliant at it, to make us feel. So I got a buddy. He was in my wedding. He works at a marketing firm in Brooklyn. Any of you heard of Scott's Lawn Care? They've got a mobile app. His firm designed the mobile app. He's the senior project designer for this company. He's, in many ways, a top player in marketing world and mobile applications. His job is to play with the apps after they're designed and to think through how those apps make you feel when you're told you can't do something. It's crazy. Now, what's really cool about it is he's a, he's a good friend. He was in my wedding. He actually designed our Grace logo. Um, and so it, we've got, we've got, we had an expert do that. And, but the marketing is so poised at that. It's so good at that. And so as Americans, we have to recognize that th- this is far closer to home than maybe we want to realize. But we better realize it. 
Because every day you turn on that television, if you go home today and you watch any football, you watch any type of TV, somebody's trying to sell you something. They're trying to make you feel like you don't have what they're offering. And they're going to give you all the reasons in about 30 seconds why you need to go and do it. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 just begins saying, I, I did it. I, I, I went after everything. And it failed. And it all disappointed So let's step into chapter 2. We're going to see the first 12 verses really break down in this way. He begins walking through great pleasure, aiming his heart at great pleasure. Secondly, he walks through then how how he aimed himself at great works. Thirdly, he's going to aim and, and walk through how he aimed himself at great possessions. And then fourthly, he's going to draw these conclusions together and say, you know what, it's just ended up in a lot of great nothingness. So let's think through great pleasure. Let's look at the text here together. Verses 1 and 3. Solomon writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So Solomon is saying to himself, self, go and set your heart's desire on anything you want. Go and grab it. Enjoy it. Give it to yourself. Test it. But behold, this was also vanity. We walked through last week how that word vanity means. It means smoke or vapor. It's, it's what happened this morning as you walked to your vehicles or got out of your vehicle to walk in the building where you would have exhaled and you would have seen your breath perhaps just for an instant and then it vanished. That's this word vanity. And so Solomon is saying the pursuit of pleasure and just enjoyment was smoke and it was vapor. And so if you aim your life to build it on that type of foundation, it will crumble underneath the weight of life. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? That word mad means foolishness. Solomon's telling us that just trying to to distract yourself with laughter, with entertainment, it's foolish. Now, we have unbelievable abilities to do that here in America. Netflix. We can spend hours on end distracting ourselves with entertainment. You have to pay for that. You don't have to pay for what's on YouTube. You could spend hours on end distracting yourself with YouTube and videos. And you can find blooper videos. You can find how-to videos. You can find cat videos. You can find all sorts of videos in between. And you and I have the ability to go and distract ourselves from life by entertaining ourselves. And Solomon's going to tell us it's just foolishness. Just foolishness. It's not what you build life upon. There's actually a a phrase that emerged several years ago in regards to Netflix specifically, the Netflix binge. And what that refers to is the, the act of watching Netflix, which is basically the collection of every TV show imaginable, just put on the internet for you to access, for as many hours on end as you want. And you just watch. And when one ends, you've got about 15 seconds to either grab the remote and decide I'm not going to watch the next one. Or you end up going, all right, I guess I'll watch the next one. And then it just continues and the cycle doesn't stop. Well, it was really interesting. In the Forbes magazine back in July, they had a researcher that did a study that if you Netflix binge for five hours or more a day, which apparently is an average, you are 
more susceptible to blood clots forming in your lungs than people who don't. Apparently, not doing anything is bad for your health. Who knew? So then we have in our culture, let's just kind of, let's just play with this because it would be fun. All right, in our culture, now the answer to the Netflix binge is Pokemon Go. All right, we get out and we get moving. And I'll tell you, there, our church is a gym. Saw a guy, I kid you not, saw a guy outside our house on the sidewalk last night like this. Carrie and I came down from putting the kids to bed and we're like, what, what is he doing? She's like, it's probably Pokemon. Yeah, you're probably right. So I opened the door. I'm like, hey, man, you okay? It's like, yeah, just trying to keep my phone out of the rain. <laughs> Pokemon? Yeah, you got it. All right, man, just want to make sure you're all right. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, these are the kind of conversations I have with people outside of our house in the church right now because our church is a stop in the middle of this game and people want to come and do things, which is actually a kind of a cool opportunity. So there's a backsided plus to that, but we can find ourselves, and those are just two comical examples of a culture that we live in that provides us unending opportunities for entertainment, unending opportunities to laugh at comedians, unending opportunities to get, get superhero videos and entertain ourselves with that and distract ourselves from life. And Solomon is going to say and has said, if that is what you aim at, Life will actually not last. It will crush this false foundation that you have created of just trying to pursue pleasure. It will crush that foundation because it can't stand up beneath the weight. And here's how this works. If all you seek to do is feel good through entertainment or pleasure, you also seek to run from what doesn't feel good. See how that works? If your whole aim in life is I just want to feel good, I just want pleasure, you also run from what doesn't feel good. But if you think back to what Solomon said last week in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, what is crooked can't be made straight. At some point, you and I have to come to grips with the fact and we have to engage the reality of the fact that life has hardships. There's downright evil in the world. And if all you aim at is just the pursuit of pleasure and the fleet from pain, you have built yourselves a life that will crush the weight of that false foundation. And Solomon, as a man who had the resources to do it, is standing back telling you and I, don't go there. In many ways, this book is the ultimate do as I say, not as I do book. Well, he continues in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly. He again is telling us about this great pleasure that he pursued. Now, there's a lot of debate. Did he get drunk did he just sip and savor the wine? What does it mean about how he, he put his heart to this to cheer his body? Uh, it, here's what I would say, uh, and I would lean towards he was pursuing intoxication because I don't find any restraint listed in the verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. As Solomon writes about what he tried to do 
I don't think there's a shred of restraint that is communicated. And then later on in Ecclesiastes, he's actually going to tell us that wine is a gift from the Lord to be enjoyed. And we can understand throughout the rest of the scriptures that that enjoyment has a, has a very definable line to it. Getting drunk is certainly not a way to use wine in a way that glorifies the Lord. So I think here in chapter 2, he has crossed the line, but had the ability, with his heart still guiding him with wisdom, to be able to step back and reflect, did that work out or not? And I think that's what you have happening in this verse. But here in verses 1 to 3, he is pursuing pleasure at all costs. Now, the pursuit of pleasure in our culture ends up in very, very specific, definable, tangible ways to be a deadly pursuit. There's lots of different ways that we see this. I'll just give you one example. The number one reason for abortions is inconvenience. When pleasure and feeling good becomes your primary objective, and you, I don't even want to use the word consequence, because it's not like a child, it's the consequence. That sounds negative. When, when the, the fruit of certain actions develops, and your whole life is aimed at pleasure, then inconvenience becomes convenient. See how that works? When pleasure is everything that you want, you begin to flee pain, you begin to flee what's going to stand in the way of that. So we can laugh and we can joke about Netflix and Pokemon Go, and those are, those are more silly examples of how this is seen in throughout our culture, but on a day where the sanctity of life is being thought through and, and, and upheld by churches around our nation, we should also pause and realize that it is this pursuit that he walks through in verses 1 to 3 that ultimately leads to the deaths of millions. Because it's a philosophy that says, give me what feels good, keep me from what feels bad. It's deadly. Well, in verses 4 to 6, Solomon's going to walk through great works. He's going to begin listing some of the things he did in the building campaigns that he undertook. And he says in verse 4, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female. Oh, see, I was going on. Verse 6, I made pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He begins to walk through these great works that he accomplished. He built houses. First Kings 9 tells us that he built an entire fleet of ships that would go out, and every three years they would return and port in Um, where he had the docks and they would unload all of these exotic animals and spices and gold and things from all over the world where these ships went. Planted vineyards, gardens, parks. He made pools to water these trees. These pools, you can actually visit these pools today. They're called the Pools of Solomon. There's an aerial view and it doesn't really give you an opportunity to really see perspective of how large these pools are. Uh, they're approximately 400 feet long by 220 feet wide. So that, that's much longer than a football field, if that helps you get an idea of, of kind of what you're looking at. And there was three of them. 
and they would be used to collect water from the mountain runoffs. And then there was aqueduct systems that had been developed where water would flow from the large or the first pool that was a little bit higher to the middle pool, which was just a tad lower. And then there was a third pool, which was lower yet. And gravity would just pull the water down those aqueduct systems. And these pools were used to water the forests that Solomon planted. The lower pool is still the one that has an active functioning aqueduct system. It provides water to Bethlehem today. These were massive, massive building projects that he undertook. Seven years building the temple. Thirteen years building his own house. He tells us, or we're told in 1 Kings, about all of the houses he built for all of his wives. Just massive, massive building projects. Here's a bit more of a zoom-in picture for you. I don't know if you can see the, the kind of the dots in where the water is. Those dots are humans. So that gives you a perspective of, of kind of what you're looking at. And you can just go home and Google Pools of Solomon and find these pictures. They're just unbelievable structures. And Solomon's going to tell us, look, I, I went and built all sorts of things. Whatever I wanted, I built. Ships, pools, I planted forests, came up with ways to water those for us, and he continues in verses 7 and 8 and walks us through the great possessions that he amassed. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. First Kings 4 actually lists what his daily provisions were. And what that means is the amount of food that was consumed every day in his own house. So in the castle, for him and all of the people that he threw parties for as he pursued pleasure and laughter and all of these things, you were looking at 60 cows every day being used. You're looking at uh, 100 sheep. You're looking at 10,000 pounds of flour, 18,000 pounds of cornmeal. This is every day. The, the modern equivalent of the cornmeal is $54,000 in cornmeal. Modern dollar equivalent of flour is $20,000 in flour. And I, I have a breakdown. I won't share it with you of what, of what the cows may have broken down into. My folks, as I was growing up, bought half sides of beef. And put it in our freezer. And so I, I took mom and dad's kind of order sheet. And I just multiplied it out to figure out, all right, what would that look like? How many sirloins did he have? Now I will tell you, that breakdown, based on what my folks did, that would have yielded 6,000 quarter pounders every day. And we're, we're talking about untold amounts. So when he says, I amassed great herds and flocks, it's without parallel. And he tells us that more than any who had been in before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. Per, perhaps up to this point in time, choirs were only male choirs because they would have been a part of the Levitical priesthood. So they would have been temple singers and male only. So he's Forging a way forward by getting some sopranos in there. I got singers, both men and women, 
many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Solomon lists out his possessions. And in verses 9 to 11, he really begins to wrap that up to tell us that those things actually yielded great nothingness. Now, before we go and look at those verses, I want to put something on the screen here for you. And you're going to see some New Testament passages and some Old Testament passages. And I know we've walked through something like this similarly before. But there is a thread that needs to be paid close attention to. Because it's exactly what you and I are going to find ourselves faced with in regards to temptation. And so when he says there's nothing new under the sun... We can rightly agree that, you know what, yeah, the, 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 may, the ways temptation may come about are different. We have computers, we have technology, we have all these things. But what we're being tempted with is the exact same thing that Adam and Eve were tempted with. It's the exact same thing that Jesus was tempted with. So we can see that in Genesis 3, 6. Eve reasons that the fruit was good for food. Her flesh had a desire. It was a delight to the eyes. Her eyes had a desire, and it was able to make one wise. I think we can rightly see that there was a pride there. Jesus then, in Matthew 4, we're told, he was tempted in his flesh. Turn these stones into bread. He was tempted with pride. He was tempted with his eyes. The pride was, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple. The angels are going to come, and they're going to save you. Let's see it. Why don't you flex a little Jesus muscle? Let's see it. The temptation of eyes was the devil took him, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world, kingdoms that Adam had given up the right to lead when he sinned. Well, John, the apostle, will write to the church in Ephesus, and he'll tell us, keep yourselves from the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. So I want you to see where Solomon engaged that. He tested this to see what it would yield. So in verse 9, look at what Solomon writes. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He doesn't use the word pride, but I think that's not too far off of an interpretation there that he aimed at and was tempted with and intoxicated by pride. And he just became everything he wanted to be. And also my wisdom remained with me. He never left or yielded the opportunity to to think through the consequences of these things. But in continuing in verse 10, what he says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I think you could see there the engagement of the flesh, thinking back to what he even began with in verses 1, 2, and 3 in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so what I want you to see, and the reason why I threw this up here is because the, the, the methods of temptation haven't changed. It's what Eve was tempted with. It's what she reasoned. It's what Jesus was tempted with. It's what the Apostle John tells us to be mindful of. And it's what Solomon says, I just gave everything I had, jumped all in to pursue it, to find out if it actually had anything worthwhile. And I'm here to tell you it didn't. 
Again, it's the ultimate do as I say, not as I do book. But he's going to begin to tie this up as we think through then the great nothingness in verses 9 and 11. Go back to verse 10 because he's going to say something important for us. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. What Solomon is saying there is that there is, there is rightly a, a sense of accomplishment that can be felt and enjoyed as you stand back and, and look at a job well done. There's, there's rightly a sense of, of enjoyment and, and happiness to be felt and experienced as you gather around that table and sit down with that group of friends and share a meal and enjoy those gut-busting times of laughter. It, it's not that laughing is wrong. It's not that pleasure in and of itself is wrong. It's not that accomplishing great works is wrong or even having the ability to, to do some things is wrong. There is a way to stand back from those and find enjoyment. But what he continually tries to bring us back to and understand is that if those are the things you pursue, you will find them lacking. So there's a proper place in which they are to be ordered. One scholar said this, that Solomon is a realist. He's not a killjoy. And he recognizes the difference between the inherent pleasure that some activities might produce and the value that's to be assigned to them. So sit down and laugh. Build things. But understand what value actually is. It's foolish for any of us to go, how great are those pallid things? How awesome are we for building them? We can turn around and go, hey, they look nice. And he concludes just as much in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so we're given both, both perspectives, that it is right and it is appropriate to be able to stand back and to enjoy the accomplishment of a task, of a job well done. It's right and appropriate to enjoy laughter, to enjoy pleasure as God has intended it. But if those things become our aim, then we've tried to now make them this foundation that the weight of life will crush. And so he's also able to step back and see that, you know what, what, what I gained from all of those things is I tried to find meaning and purpose in all of those things was just more vanity. It was a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained. See, the abundant life that Jesus promised to give those who follow him is a life built on what matters. It's a life that calls you and I to live for and to follow Christ. It's a life that allows for us to enjoy the gifts that God has given us, but it's also a life that can stand underneath the weight of life itself and the storms that life may bring. 
It's a life that promises uncompromisable meaning and purpose, unemptiable fulfillment and unshakable joy. And that's meaning and purpose that lasts beyond the buildings that may crumble. It's meaning and purpose that lasts beyond the, the, the table that may one day burn. It's unemptiable fulfillment that laughs beyond the laughter stopping or the movie ending. It's unshakable joy that yields far greater and lasting pleasure than any of what the world may offer. And the luxury magazine is going to try to bait you into believing that what you need is a $2,000 top coat. And what happens, and if we're not careful, we will find ourselves just starting to spin around that cul-de-sac. And I think as believers, we can be just as tempted. Well, for us, it is a temptation. For non-believers, it's just what they do. They just spin. But faith is the exit. Faith is what gets us off the first time. It's what helps us continually get off if we find ourselves stepping back in there to start the cycle again. So where does your faith maybe not match your pursuits? I don't think Solomon concludes at all that pursuing building projects is wrong. But the reasons why matter greatly. Where does your faith not match your pursuits? Where does your faith not match your lifestyle or your finances? Solomon threw everything that he had, countless amounts of money and resources at trying to attain what he thought would satisfy and fulfill him, and he's there standing back and saying, it didn't work. He did it at a scale that you and I can't even begin to imagine. Where does your faith not match where your time is invested? See, the exit ramp is faith in Jesus Christ. And every time as believers, we feel the pull back to the cul-de-sac. We rightly respond by laying our hearts down again. Solomon applied his heart at every pleasure the world afforded him and found it lacking. We, by faith, and sometimes it is by faith, are called to apply our hearts and lay them down at the feet of Jesus because that's where the abundant life is. See, Solomon aimed his heart at everything the world offered and found it lacking. We can aim our hearts towards Christ and find everything we need. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us see areas that our faith does not match our actions, or perhaps where our actions does not match our faith. That, that we're, we're living in such a way that is, is trying to pursue greatness or things or pleasure and not ultimately pursuing you. 
And so, God, we want to respond in, in a way very different than how Solomon responded, where he, he, he said to his heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Just go get whatever you want and go enjoy it and see what it has to give you. God, we pray for the faith to conclude very differently and to be able to say, come now, we'll lay our hearts down before you. And so, Lord, again this morning, We say, here's my heart. Take it. Speak what is true to it. Move in it. And change it. We pray this in Jesus' name.